How many of already? How many of you have already seen Star Wars? Oh yeah, oh yeah. I tried to get a lightsaber and I was going to wheel it up here. We went and saw it. I love the Star Wars series. In fact, this the Star Wars, the Force Awakening has has already set records for the biggest domestic and worldwide opening weekend. It reached the 500 million mark faster than any movie ever. And it's on track this weekend to get over a billion in sales. Isn't that crazy? Star Wars is the story of the cosmic battle between the, the Jedi and the Sith, the, uh, the, the Jedi representing the force of light or the light side and the, the Sith representing the, the dark side. Epic battles like this, like Star Wars and others, are common in movies and novels. Have been, I mean, throughout the decades. And there are the, the beautiful, well-written allegories like um, "Tale of Two Cities" or "The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe," or "The Lord of the Rings," which have strong biblical symbolism of of good and evil, good versus evil. The Lord of the Rings, we see these huge battles between good and evil. Yet, really, these stories, they they pale in comparison to the the battle described in the Bible. This battle is first proclaimed in Genesis 3.15 when God says to the serpent, I will put enmity between you, speaking of the serpent and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He, speaking of Christ, he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. And we see the, the flames of this war throughout the Bible, from the Garden of Eden all throughout the Old Testament up to the hill of Golgotha. And though Christ's victorious resurrection dealt this mortal, fatal wound to our arch enemy, I mean, the battle still rages on today. Paul writes in Ephesians six twelve, he says, We do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. This is way bigger than the dark side. The last chapter of this epic battle is found in the book of Revelation. So this morning we're, we'll be looking at chapters 1 through 16 and then next Sunday we'll, we'll finish out the book with chapters 17 through 22. Obviously when we're looking at a whole book like Revelation in just two Sundays, it's going to require us to take a, a real large flyover. I mean, we, we won't be looking into the details of each verse. We won't look, won't be looking at all the, the symbolism and the numbers. We're not going to walk through the, the different views on pre-mill, ah-mill, post-mill. We're not going to get into dispensationalism and all the other isms. It's going to be a, a grand look at the big themes of this battle. This morning we're going to look at the buildup of this battle that we just talked about and the parallels that it has to the story of Exodus. That's the title of the message this morning, the final Exodus. And the next week we'll be looking 
We'll conclude by looking at the defeat of the enemy and the, the journey into God's ultimate promised land, to which we'll call the final Canaan. I want us to, to read together from the seventh chapter of the book of Revelation. Revelation chapter 7, beginning in verse 9. We'll go through verse 17. If you're looking in your pew Bible, it's on page 1032. So Revelation chapter 7, 9 through 17. We've sung a lot of Revelation this morning. And we'll see a lot of those words and phrases uh, in our text through the morning. Revelation 7, beginning in verse 9, it says, After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number, from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures. And they fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God, saying, Amen, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Then one of the elders addressed me, saying, Who? Who are these clothed in white robes and from where have they come? I said to him, sir, you know. And he said to me, these are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the lamb. Therefore, they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them, nor any scorching heat. For the lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd, and he will guide them to springs of living water. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Let's pray again. Father, just in reading a passage like this, as we see a glimpse of of what heaven is going to be like. We're in awe. I pray, Father, as we, as we look here in these next few moments at Revelation, God, that you would encourage us, you would speak to us, you would embolden us, and you would give us a renewed hope. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let me give you just a, a brief overview of, of the book. John, the apostle of, of Jesus Christ, the author of both the gospel and, and the letters of John, is likely the author of Revelation. He wrote it around AD 95, 97. He was exiled during that time on the island of Patmos, which is um, right between uh, Greece and Turkey, modern-day Turkey. The various um, interpretive methods that have been used throughout the centuries to try to understand Revelation. One looks at the details of the book as it relates specifically to John's time. So as they would read it, they'd say, well, this, this is 
how John sees this. This is what happens during John's time. This is this called the preterist view. There's another called the historical view. This is where they look back and you see the details and they, they are specific events occurring throughout time from the time of John up to the present day. Another view looks at all the images and, and really doesn't see historical events, but rather um, grand themes like the sovereignty of God or good versus evil. Another view that's called the futurist view, see the details of the book as really pertaining everything to the future. So from Revelation 4 onward, they are events that are yet to take place. There's one last view, which I, I, I like. It's this eclectic view. All of these views have strengths and weaknesses. This eclectic view kind of takes the strengths of all the various views, kind of melds them together, says that John didn't, didn't have a particular view as, or as Christ was inspiring through the Spirit of God to to, to have John pin this vision down, that he had many things in mind, past, present, and, and future. And that's the method uh, that will influence uh, how I interpret and will preach over these next couple of weeks. In the prologue in chapter 1, we find the intention of the book. If you flip back to, to chapter 1, beginning in verse 1, it says, the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his servants the things that must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant, John. So God is revealing to Jesus, who reveals to the angel, who reveals to John. Who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that saw him. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy. And blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. First of all, notice it's, it's the revelation of Jesus Christ. It's the revelation of Jesus Christ. It is of Him. It is from Him. It is for Him. It is about Him. It's all about Jesus. He's the focus here. It's his revelation, the revelation of Jesus Christ. See, the one that was revealed in flesh in a manger is now revealed in the word of the testimony of Christ. Which secondly, notice that there's, there's a powerful blessing from God. All those who read and hear and keep what is written will be blessed. I would encourage you over these next days and weeks just to, to read through the book of Revelation. It says that those who, who hear and keep what's written, they will be blessed. See, we know that all Scripture is God-breathed. It's profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction and training in righteousness. Revelation is, is a part of that inspired Word of God. It's not just prophecy or a pop apocalyptic writing. It is, it is for us today. It is to reprove us, to encourage us, to build us up, to train us in righteousness. So as we read it, we're looking into the future. Now, it's, it's divinely inspired to, to make us holy, to, to give us hope, to help us see the, the glories of God in Christ and to bless us, to 
to bless us. So let's let's begin this flyover. Got to buckle up, hang on. Chapters one through sixteen, the final Exodus. First of all, I want you to see, I want you to see the pains of captivity, the pains of captivity. If you were to look back at Exodus chapter 1, beginning in verse 8, I want you to listen to this. It says, Now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. And he said to his people, Behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply. And if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. Therefore, they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. See, the people of Israel at that time, they, they felt the pains of captivity from, from a ruthless Pharaoh. They labored and toiled under the persecution of this emperor, one who would enslave them for his own narcissistic purposes. And persecution even took the form of incredible great wickedness, we see the the slaughtering of all of these male babies. Even on this side of the cross, though we've been set free from sin and death, we continue to feel the residual pains of captivity, persecution, and even martyrdom. Writing about the end of the age, Jesus says in Matthew, This is in Matthew 24. Listen to what Jesus says. As he says about the end times, he says, they will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death. You will be hated by all the nations for my name's sake. And then many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another. Many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. And because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold but the one who endures to the end will be saved. The seven churches of, of Revelation addresses where, the, the, I mean, these guys were right in the midst of, of persecution. Not long before, Nero was the emperor of Rome, and when a fire broke out there in the city, he blamed the, the Christians, and a great persecution over these Christians there in the city of Rome took place. And now you have a, a, a new leader his name is Domitian. And this persecution of Christians is, is now, I mean, it's now going on throughout the land. And that's what's happening here in these seven churches during, as, as John writes to them. This persecution was widespread. In Ephesus, listen to what Jesus says. He says, I know your works, your toil and your patient endurance. I know you're enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake. And you are not growing weary. To Smyrna, Jesus writes, I know your tribulation and your poverty and the slander of those who say that they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. The devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested. In Pergamum, he writes, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. Here he's speaking of this imperial cult or um, emperor worship. 
Christians were called upon to bow down and, and to worship the emperor. If they didn't, great persecution was, was laid upon them. He says, you did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. So here you have a martyr. Thyatira, Jesus writes, I know your works, your love and faith and service and patient endurance. Remember, too, how quickly, looking back at the people of Israel, how quickly they, they wanted to return back to their captivity. Remember when they had made their way up to the Red Sea and they looked back and the, the armies, the Egyptian armies are, are coming and they begin to cry out to Moses, what have you done? We would have been better off back as, as slaves under the captivity of the Egyptians. God performs a miracle and they go through the Red Sea. And not long as they walk out into the wilderness and they become hungry, they begin moaning and complaining and grumbling to Moses, oh, if we had just stayed back there, we would have, we would, we would not be hungry. We would not starve to death. What have you done? Longing for their captivity. We see the same thing happening here in the midst of these seven churches. These seven churches. Ephesus says that they abandoned their first love. Pergamum, they, they held to false teaching. The church looked more like the pagan culture than they did a church. Thyatira, they practiced. The church practiced sexual immorality. Sardis, their, their faith became dead. Laodicea, their faith had become lukewarm. They were arrogant, materialistic, and blind. God wanted to vomit them out of his mouth. Here's the deal. Before we start pointing fingers at the Israelites, before we look at this church and go, man, how could they? We've got to look in the mirror and realize we're just like that. We're just like that. We too feel the, the pains of captivity. There's times when we want to go back. Some here today, maybe, maybe you don't call yourself a Christ follower. You, like all of us at one time, are held captive by sin. Like Moses, there's a deliverer. There is one who can deliver Revelation 1, 5 through 6 says, To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom, priest to our God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. See, sin ultimately leads, leads to spiritual death. It leads to death. But by turning from sin and trusting in the Deliverer, giving your life to him, letting him take control of your life. The, this one who gave his life on the cross that we might be set free. If you trust him, he can set you free. At the end of the service, I'll be down. Some of our elders will be down. We'd love to visit with you about what it means to, to be a follower of Christ. But for all of us, we we know that we have to lay aside everything that Really, every sin that Scripture says that clings so closely, sin is it's like it's lurking still. Paul struggled with this battle between the spirit and the flesh. He writes in Romans 7, verses 14 and 15. Listen to what he says. He says, For I, I know that the law is spiritual, 
that I am of the flesh, sold under sin. I do not understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing that I hate. We need to heed the words of of Jesus to the seven churches. These are some of the things that he says. He said, remember where you have fallen. Repent. Do the works that you did at first. Wake up and strengthen what remains. He says, remember what you received and heard. Keep it and repent. Hold fast. Be zealous. Repent. See, all of us are, are tempted to turn from our from our first love. We're, we're tempted to, to become lukewarm or to blend into the culture around us. Think about the, the, your faithfulness to Christ. You just, just take a minute and look at your life. Be honest with yourself. What is, what is your testimony? What is the witness of your testimony in your home, at, at school, or at work? We need to be people of repentance. One of the common words in all of these letters, repent, repent, repent. We're coming up to a, to a season, a new year, maybe where we set goals or resolutions, you know. You know, maybe it's like, oh, God, I want to, I want to be in your word more. I want to be, I want to be a, a better husband. I want to lead our home better. I want to love my 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 husband more sacrificially. I want to I want to have a consistent quiet time. I want to serve more faithfully and give more cheerfully. We say these things, but we remember this the, the pains of captivity, they're, they're they're nearby and they're they're drawing us. We have a tendency to to look back. We get into a month or two and we look back and we just we find ourselves almost hopeless. He calls us to to turn back, to repent to hold fast, to stand up and keep moving forward, to fix your eyes on Jesus, who is the author and the perfecter of your faith. See, in the, in the midst of, of the pains of, these, of, of captivity, there, there's hope. There's hope. He, Jesus Christ writes to these churches. He says, those who endure and conquer, he will eat of the tree of life. He will not be hurt by the second death. He will receive an, a new name that will be confessed before God. He will forever dwell in the temple of God and will sit with Christ on his throne. Fight. Contend for the faith this year. Go hard after him. The pains of captivity. Once you see too the, the glories of the deliverer, the glories of the re, of the deliverer. See God in, in the days of of Egyptian captivity, God raised up a deliverer. His name was Moses, and by the power of God, he would he would deliver them from captivity through the wilderness and up to the promised land. Likewise, in the book of Revelation, we, we see one who, who delivers his people from captivity, who, who walks them through the tribulation and will bring them into this promised land. In chapters 4 and 5, John is given a firsthand look at the deliverer. He's brought before the throne of heaven. He sees one seated on the throne who had the, 
the appearance of, of, of jasper and chameleon. Around the throne was this rainbow, beautiful rainbow, 24 thrones where 24 elders sat. Around the throne were flashes of lightning and peals of thunder. Before the throne was this sea of glass that looked like crystal. Around the throne, there were these four living creatures, massive with six wings, full of eyes, and they would not cease to say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. They are singing that song now. They have forever sung that song and they will forever sing it. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. And the 24 elders, they bow down in worship and they're casting their crowns before the throne saying, worthy are you, O Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. John looks and he sees God holding in his right hand a scroll. It's sealed with seven seals. Scroll is likely the story of, really the whole story of redemption. It's the story that God has put forth. It's the culmination of, of, of everything from beginning to end. An angel is there and he's loudly proclaiming, Who is worthy to open the scroll and to break the seals. And there's silence in heaven. No one can step forward. Scripture says that John falls down to his knees and he begins to weep. In that silence, just weeping. And the angels comes and says, hey, stop weeping. Stand up, look. There's a lion, lion of the tribe of Judah. He is a king and a conqueror. And as John looks, he sees not a lion, but a lamb. And this lamb as if he was slain. And this lamb makes his way to the throne and he reaches up. John is looking at this as the lamb reaches up and he takes hold of that scroll and all of heaven bursts out in glorious worship. They sing a new song. Worthy are you to take the scroll, to open its seals. You were slain and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom and priests to our God and they shall reign on the earth. Then all, all of the heavenly hosts thousands upon thousands upon thousands in the thunderous roar of worship. They cry out, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing to him who sits upon the throne and to the lamb be blessing and honor, glory and might forever and ever. Amen. Our deliverer, he is a lion our deliverer, he is the lamb, and he alone is worthy. One of these days, we're going to be there. And I believe we're going to see this thing unfold. This isn't just something that happened in the past. We're going to get to see this. And like John, we're going to stand in awe, and we're going to join with the heavenly host and crying out our worth to the lamb. What a day that is going to be. We're going to bow down before our 
glorious deliverer. Chapter 7, we, we read this earlier. It's the, the song of those delivered. John sees a multitude that no one could number from every nation, tribe, peoples, and language. And they, they sing this song, salvation belongs to our God. See, it's not about our being saved. It's now, it's, it's all about him. It's about Christ and about God. Salvation belongs to God who sits upon the throne and to the lamb. Chapter 14, they, they sing a new song. In chapter 15, they, they sing the, the song of Moses and the song of the lamb. Oh, church, how can we be silent? How can our worship not be filled with, with awe and wonder? How can we not marvel at the worth of our deliverer who, who saved us, who redeemed us and ransomed us with his blood? We ought to not be able to contain. Our, we, we, when Sunday comes and when it's over, we can't wait to come back and gather with, with the people of God so that we can worship again. And then there's this longing and yearning in our hearts for the coming of Christ when we, we know that we will be before him and we will worship him in all of his glory forever and ever. I mean, our hearts should just continually burst forth with the longing of adoring worship. Oh, maybe this year. That this coming year be, be the year of adoring worship for UBC. I mean, your times with the, with the Lord and your quiet times, your times in, in, in the Word and your, your times worshiping as a family. Oh, may it be passionate. May it be filled with, with joy and awe and wonder. May you see the glories of our deliverer. pains of captivity, the glories of the Redeemer. Lastly, I want you to see the the horrors of judgment. The horrors of judgment. Several weeks back, Brad was preaching through the first part of Exodus. We saw a picture of God's judgment being poured out upon the Egyptians through through these plagues. We saw that with with each plague, there was a an increasing intensity to God's judgment. So it began, it affected the water, and it eventually affected the land and the sky, and, and then it even began to affect the, the health of, of, of the people. And even death ultimately came to the firstborn male. In a similar way, but, but now really on a, on a global scale, God's judgment is unleashed in the breaking of these seven seals, the blowing of seven trumpets and the pouring out of seven bowls. See, where the first four seals are broken, the the four horsemen of the apocalypse are released, bringing this a, a, a lust for conquest. We see civil war breaking out, strife among people. We see famine, pestilence, and death. In the midst of this judgment, though, believers will, they will, they will give their lives for the sake of Christ, the scripture says. They will give their lives, the fifth seal. These are those willing to deny themselves, to, to take up their cross and to follow him at, at great cost. Do you know that today there's more than, right now, more than a hundred million 
believers being persecuted. A hundred million. Sometimes we don't see it, we don't feel it, maybe in, in small ways. There are literally thousands of Christians that will give their lives for the sake of Christ this year. Thousands. I've seen estimates, eight, 9,000 people giving their lives for Christ. See, these are a picture of the open fifth seal, and they lead us to the opening of the sixth seal, which is basically the, the dawning of, of the end of time. The seventh seal ushers in the seven trumpets, and just as God used the, the plagues in delivering his people from the Egyptians, God will use these plagues, the plagues of the trumpets and the bowls, to deliver his people from the forces of darkness. And the plagues of Egypt... You remember we saw bloodied waters. We saw hail and fire and darkness. We saw locusts and boils and death. Well, likewise, with the trumpets, we see hail and fire. We see water turned to blood, rivers made bitter, darkness, locusts like scorpions and death. Then with even greater intensity, the bowls are poured out, God's God's horrible judgment is poured out and we see sores, we see seas and rivers completely being turned to blood. The sun, the sun burning down and scorching people. We see darkness, drought, earthquake. You see what's happening? You mean you see what's happening here? It's a, it's a literal decreation going on. The light has turned to darkness. The the waters are ruined. The land is rendered useless. Death fills the sea and the earth. Yet in the midst of this judgment, there is salvation and it pierces through. God's people are sealed and protected in chapter 7. Chapter 12, we see that God was present and protecting Jesus, even there at his birth. Amidst the war that breaks out in heaven, there is hope, because the accuser of the brethren is cast down. He is conquered by the blood of the Lamb and the word of sacrificial testimony. We see in these chapters that Satan, the great beast, arises on the earth along with with the Antichrist, the second beast. They'll bring misery to mankind and especially to the people of God. It's a magnification of the misery that Pharaoh brought upon the people of Israel. Yet, yet these, these horrors of judgment, decreation are not out of God's sovereign control. God is the sovereign ruler of all. Remember, it was, it was he who had the, the scroll in his hand. Satan doesn't have it. It's It's God. He holds it. And it's given to the one who is worthy, Christ. It's Christ who opens those seals. They are in control. They are carrying out this redemptive story to its completion. Chapter 15, the people of God, they sing the song of Moses and to the Lamb. Listen to what they sing. Great and amazing are your deeds, O Lord God, the Almighty. Just and true are your ways, 
O King of the nations. Here in the midst of, of the horrors of judgment, they, they, God is in control. And the believers, they, they see it. And even as the stuff is in, unfurled, God is great. His ways are just. Great and amazing are your deeds. Just and true are your ways, O King of the nations. Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship for your righteous acts have been revealed. In the midst here, God is being glorified. He is holy. He will come, draw his people, bring his, gather his people. He will lead them through this final exodus and into a land of promise where there is no more war, where there's no more tear, no more pain, just endless worship. So the pains of captivity, the glories of the Redeemer, the horrors of judgment, how are we to respond in the midst of of this final exodus? How do we respond I think in the, in the pains of captivity, I think we, we, we have to fully trust, fully turn to Christ. When you look back at the Ephesian passage where it just displays this cosmic battle, Paul tells us to put on the whole armor of God, which is Christ himself. You remember these pieces, the, the belt of truth, the breastplate of righteousness, the shoes of the gospel of peace, the, the shield of faith, the helmet of salvation, the sword of the Spirit. All these are, are pointing to Christ. We are to let His truth, His righteousness, His gospel, His salvation, and His word cover our lives. This is how we stand firm and, and withstand in the evil day. This is how we hold fast amidst the struggles, amidst the yearnings to go back to captivity. We put on Christ. Romans 13, 14, it says it. Paul, Paul writes, he says, But put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. You know how you fight against the flesh? You put Christ on. I mean, each day we get up, Oh, God, fill me with your spirit. Put on the armor. Put on the Christ. Let him cover your heads and thoughts. Let him cover your emotions and your, and your hearts and your desires. Let him, let him cover your, your feet so that you go out with on, on mission to boldly proclaim who he is. Let him infuse every part of who you are. Put on the Lord Jesus Christ. Make no provision for the flesh and its desires. I think, too, we need to see the glories of our Redeemer. I think too often we just um, think we have a small view of him. He's this, this little Jesus that we kind of keep around, pull him out when we need him. He is this grand, great deliverer. He is the one who alone is worthy to take the scroll. 
He gave his life. He poured out his blood. He's worthy to be worshipped. Oh, in all of our quiet times, in all of our times in the Word, in all of our times praying to the Lord, in all of our times where we gather corporately, let us make much of Him. And lastly, I think we need to remember that God is the sovereign ruler of all things, even in the horrors of judgment. In the midst of struggle, in the midst of even today, our trials or loss, in the midst of your despair, your brokenness, your suffering, your persecution, and maybe even the loss, the very loss of life, God is orchestrating yours and my final deliverance. God is for you. There's nothing, there's nothing that can separate you from his love. I think Paul, he he paints this perfectly, beautifully in Romans 8. Listen to this. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? Sounds a lot like Revelation. Who shall separate us from these things? As it is written, for your sake we're being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Nothing, nothing can separate you from his love. He's got you. So in the horrors of judgment and tribulation and strife, Hold on to him because he's holding on to you and you can't get loose. Bask in his love. Treasure him. Next week we look at the defeat of our enemy. And this is going to an incredible climactic end where he has delivered us He has taken us through this final exodus, through the tribulation, and one day he's going to bring something new. He's going to bring us into a promised land of rest and peace and eternal joy. But until that day, we've got to trust in Christ alone. Let's pray together. Father, this is it's been a it's been a high flyover of these these sixteen chapters. I pray, Father, that we maybe in a small way have seen, tasted a, a little bit of of what awaits us. God, that you would encourage us amidst tribulation, 
whether it's to come or even the struggles and trials and persecution that, that we may face now. Help us to hold on to, to the hope that is ours, the blood of the Lamb, the one who is worthy, our deliverer. God, and we praise you that there is nothing that can separate us from your love as we trust and hold to Christ alone, our rock, our Savior, and our Deliverer. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.